Hi everyone, I'm Liam Sanyo from Inside Scientific, your favorite online source for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content helping you do your best work. This episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Jacqueline Lindbergh, Assistant Professor in the Department of Nutrition and Exercise Physiology at the University of Missouri. Dr. Lindbergh is a human integrative physiologist with a primary focus on the role of the autonomic nervous system in cardiovascular responses to exercise and environmental stressors in health and disease. She recently joined us for a webinar to discuss the basics of human autonomic research and to share tips and tricks for data collection and analysis during human autonomic testing to improve the accuracy and reliability of your findings. Let's get right into it. This one comes from Sarah, who's asked if you could please specify some of the effects of the menstrual cycle on autonomic activity and uh, whether you have any recommendations for controlling for this. Oh, that's a, that's a fantastic question, Sarah. I'm an area I'm actually really interested in. So in my lab, if we are only going to do a single study visit, quite often we will study women during the um, early follicular phase of the menstrual cycle, so typically somewhere between days zero and seven um, following menstrual bleeding. And that's just because in that phase in the menstrual cycle, estradiol is lowest in the women. And so char characteristically, people will say that women look most like men, quote, unquote. But I really recommend that you take a look in J Journal of Applied Physiology, there was a recently a point counterpoint about controlling for menstrual cycle phase and specifically human cardiovascular studies. And a lot of the authors do autonomic testing. And there's a lot of fantastic opinions. And I think the answer, easy answer is it depends. Second is it's definitely affected. So depending on the phase of the menstrual cycle, you study um, a woman and you will see differences in muscle sympathetic nerve activity, sensitivity, and reactivity, although it depends on the, the study that you look at. But there, I do believe there were 26 letters to the editor following that point counterpoint from just tons of experts in the field. So rather than me answering that, I think it, I would refer to that um, fantastic resource to hopefully help tailor that answer to the types of questions you may have. Excellent. Great answer. Thanks so much, Jackie. We've received a number of questions here on controlling breath rate using a metronome. So does this cause stress for the individual? And do you always recommend controlling breath rate uh, during HRV assessment? Yeah, I think that's such a good point because I do think it causes stress. In the, in the situations where we've used a metronome, because it is important to control respiratory rate for some testings, for example, you really don't want people to be apneic during certain tests, but it does increase stress. It's actually hard to breathe with a metronome. It's just very unnatural. So do I recommend it? I recommend that you measure it first. So if you're going to do heart rate variability assessments, the best thing you could do is just measure respiratory rate because that will help you Make sure that they're not apneic, they're not holding their breath, they're not falling asleep. And some people would recommend that you would do just a normal recording, so a five-minute recording not on a metronome. Then repeat and do another five-minute recording on a metronome, and then report both of those. And I would say, in general, we do not use a metronome in the lab. We just record respirations and then report them. And I would say, as long as the participant's resting quietly, the respiratory rate's rather reg pretty regular, and you can just report that, that on ref average during our heart rate variability measures, our respiratory rate was around 12 breaths per minute or something like that. But yeah, everybody makes a really good point, whoever wrote those in, that it does, the metronome causes a lot of stress. 
Excellent. Thanks so much, Jackie. Uh, next question here from Mahmood, who's asked, can we measure HRV from blood pressure waveform rather than ECG? That's a good question. Um, I will say when our ECG is fuzzy or there's something wrong with ECG and we're not sure about the recording, we will use the non-invasive blood pressure for a measure of heart rate. So if we just need to say, you know, during rest, heart rate was 60 beats per minute, you could probably use the non-invasive blood pressure. However, that peak of the blood pressure is kind of rounded if you've ever zoomed in on it. And you're not going to get the resolution, that one to two millisecond resolution in that signal that you really need for an accurate measure of heart rate variability. So I wouldn't recommend it. I would recommend using an ECG signal where you have a high sampling rate of about um, 1,000 hertz to really make sure that you have the resolution. Because I don't think that, you know what I'm, I'm saying, there's like a, it's just a little weight curvy on the top of the non-invasive blood pressure, and it's not going to give you that tight resolution that you need. Excellent. Perfect. So here's here's a question here. What uh, What's the difference between NICO TPR software, so uh, non-invasive cardiac output total peripheral resistance software, from TPR from uh, measured from finger blood pressure? It's essentially the same. So 80 instruments, I don't know how many years ago it was, essentially got access to the same algorithm. So if you use like a Finipress and the Finipress, um, like an independent standing, you know, an independent device that's not associated with 80 instruments, it will give you an estimate of cardiac output, stroke volume, stroke profile resistance. And essentially 80 instruments, you took that algorithm and created this NICO software. So it's very similar in that it will look at the um, pressure waveform of the finger cuff which is what the other systems use to get an estimate of stroke volume. And from there, you calculate the, with heart rate, you calculate the cardiac output and the total peripheral resistance. So the technology is very similar. It's just built into the software. Perfect. Question here. Is there a gold standard me- method for measuring sympathetic activity during a VO2 max test on a sarc- cycle ergometer or a treadmill? And they said, I assume it's not microneurography. Not in my lab, but there are people who can do it. I I trained with micronography. I primarily do it in the peroneal nerve, which is in the lower limb. But there are groups um, that do it in the upper limb. So uh, you can have individuals cycle while you have their arms resting kind of on a board. And you can do micronography in the upper arm. So it is possible. I've never done it, but there are people who can. I'm not sure if you can get all the way to max um, because it's just so much body movement. But it's definitely possible. So I think there are people out there, if you go on PubMed, I think you can take a look. There are people who do micronography during cycling. Excellent. So the next one is one from Jack, who says, uh, afferent-efferent signals from heart and viscera to vagus via nucleus tractus solidaris is greater than vagal efferents. And can you comment on this? Yeah, I guess... The easiest answer is that when we're doing research in humans, we can only measure what we can measure, I guess. So there's always going to be known limitations to the recordings that we do. And I would agree that when you're when you're measuring heart rate variability, it's obviously going to heart rate is modulated by, you know, more than just cardiac vagal activity. And so you're going to have all these extrinsic inputs as well. And it, I guess there's the importance is to know what you can record and then understand the limitations of it. Um, I'm not sure if that completely answers the question, but I agree that we're very limited in sometimes what we can do in humans. And that's why I think it's nice if you can do some translational work with some collaborators um, and just understand the limitations of your methods. Perfect. Uh, thanks so much, Jackie. The last one, uh, which is coming in from Sarah, who's asked whether you have 
had any success with wearable devices? Oh, for example, for heart rate variability, I know a lot of people use yes. them. <laughs> I think the I think the importance is if you're going to use it and you're going to trust the data from it, you should know your sampling rate because depending on the piece of equipment you're using, if your sampling rate is under 200 hertz, you should be concerned as to the reliability of your data. Same thing if your signal's filtered or if you're just getting like a black box set of numbers from it. The other thing you could do then is just to take a look, for example, at the time domain and the frequency domain data. Like I said, they really should align. And if you, if you're getting, you know, 10 data points and you only use two of them because those are the numbers you like, uh, I think there's a significant limitation in that. But I personally haven't used wearable devices, but I think if you do, you really just need to, to know what your sampling rates are and filters and things like that. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.